0: Hello there, Nookie, and welcome
1: to What Women and Other Wonderful Humans Want, presented by Dating Kinky. It's the start of a great author's week, and I'm John, also known as Hi There Catsuit, welcoming you to the show and to the talk about two wonderful books. We begin with the one called The Making of a Woman. Jules is an author, speaker, and professional bodybuilder. After enduring an abusive childhood, Jules decided to use her earlier trauma to enter recovery, sexually liberate herself, and enter the competitive world of professional bodybuilding. Jules hopes to inspire others to push forward, no matter the challenges, and even competed in the nationals at the NPC Figure Division at age 49. Jules has had the honor of being a guest speaker on Keys and Anklets, a podcast focused on separating facts from fiction within often widely misunderstood lifestyles. Venus's Pillow Talk Crowdcast, another podcast that focuses on female-led relationships, and a documentary of alternate lifestyles broadcasted in the UK. Now let's hear the story of Jules. The Making of a Woman, on what women and other wonderful humans want.
0: It's five questions about memorable firsts. We call it
2: The First Five.
1: And as always, we start with the first five, five questions about firsts with Jules. First time you ever picked up a weight and your
2: reaction to it. Wow. That's an interesting question. The first time I picked up a weight, I could not tell you, but it was probably very heavy.
1: (laughs) And it led to something that absolutely brought you new joy and a competition that you just participated in. Oh my
2: gosh. Now, yes, fast forward nine plus years of bodybuilding and working out, I should say that this, it was probably about three weeks ago now, I, I qualify for nationals and I went to a national level NPC uh, championship competition. And I am grateful to say that I took home a third place trophy.
1: Congratulations. Thank
2: you, thank you. First time you ever picked up a flogger. Oh, now that mine or somebody else's (laughs) whichever is more appropriate (laughs) (laughs) clearly mine um you know i think the not the first yeah i was it was actually at uh it was called beyond vanilla in dallas texas and you know where they have all the great vendors there was this beautiful like display of all these like exotic leathers and I remember the smell of it. And I picked up this blogger, which now is mine. And I was like, oh, oh my God. So maybe that, that's the, the last, that's the first time I really remember like holding on to that. It was amazing. <laughs> first time you
1: looked in a mirror and said, something's got to change.
2: Oh, unfortunately, that was like when I was 10. 10. That was, I, I still remember, I'm a very fair-skinned person. And so um, I remember standing in front of the mirror at 10 years old with the, you know, whatever was going on in my mind. And I remember just like my legs, my legs were not that skinny legs like all the other girls had. And I kid you not, John, I dug my nails into my thighs in frustration. And, and it started way back then, yeah.
1: First time you ever looked in a mirror and said, I made it.
2: I got sober when I was 35. It could not have been too long after that date because I did. I made it. I made it to the other side. Safe. <laughs>
1: First time you ever looked in a mirror and said, I see my authentic
2: self? Probably when I first started dating my husband, he was amazing at allowing me that space to let me just be me, just the way I was. So that was probably eight years ago now.
0: Have you ever wanted to try something a little kinky in the bedroom, but had no idea where to start? Or maybe your partner just told you they're into water sports, no, not the jet ski kind, and you really want to fulfill their fantasy, but you're nervous. That's totally normal. I'm Kate Sloan. I'm a sex journalist who's talked about kink in magazines like Cosmo, Playboy, and Glamour and on my podcast, The Dildorks. My new book, 101 Kinky Things Even You Can Do, is a guide to some of the hottest and best-known kinks out there, from age play to zapping and everything in between. Each section offers three suggestions for ways you can try out your new interest with a partner or even by yourself. Curious? Order your copy now at 101kinkythings.com and start learning new things about your sexuality. Hello, I'm Jessie Sage from Peep Show Media. Peep Show Media is a multimedia magazine bringing news and stories from the sex industry. Be sure to check out our website at peepshowmedia.com for essays, porn reviews, events, interviews, news stories, and more. Also, make sure to listen to our podcast, The Peep Show Podcast, anywhere you get podcasts. And for a bit more of a personal glance into my life, make sure to check out my January 15th interview on What Women and Other Wonderful Humans Want we invite you to follow us on social media check us out at what women want p1 on twitter what women want podcast on instagram and for our kinky friends on fetlife at www.podcast. podcast and now back to this episode of what women and other wonderful humans want So in the first
1: five, we touched on a few different subjects that are about your book. Your book is a Phoenix-like story of going from the ashes to going through so many challenges and then finally coming out the other side with not only a new view of your own self but a view of the woman that can be, and you continue to grow today. Yes. If I were to give an elevator pitch about your book, because I want to give our listeners an idea of the premise of the book before we start getting into different parts of it, what would that be?
2: You know, a quick snapshot of the book is how a Midwest, Midwestern girl, Um, got lost in the second family and used drugs and alcohol to uh, cope with emotions, brought all of that into adulthood. And uh, I think it was about 19 years of drinking and drugging, and then she gets sober. And then she doesn't just get sober, then life really starts to happen. Like that's when life really takes place. So
1: there's so many different audiences for this book. Obviously, with a presenting producer like Dating Kinky, Mm -hmm. we came to your attention from the kink side of you. Yes. Then there is the recovery side that may be interested. But you had mentioned in some of your publicity materials that this is a book about life. What is the biggest lesson that you learned while writing the book about yourself?
2: It was really awesome to work with Marlena. And then during the process of then reading my life in print, it gave me empathy for that little person. It also really showed me the amount of courage that was placed within me to be able to keep going. I think when you're, you know, you're doing something or you have a goal in mind, you just, you forget like where you come from. And by, you know, sharing my story at, in this format, it, it's given me a lot of closure, but it's also like giving me a little bit of a pat on the back. Like Jules, you've done really well here. You know, and that's a really good feeling because that's not something we usually do.
1: You have talked in many different podcasts and your publicist has done an amazing job at getting you out at all these different podcasts. (laughs) And as I mentioned before we started, I want to touch on some different points that, uh, and I encourage people and we'll actually put in the show notes a link where you can listen to all the different podcasts telling your story. But what you just said has led me to this question. When you tell your story and then start hearing it back, do you develop empathy for the person that you're hearing the story about? In other words, do you almost separate yourself into a third person going, wow, I admire this person who went through all this.
2: Yes, because, well- as you say, like, admiring that person. I'm, I'm not the person I was in the beginning or in the middle or, you know, so it's like there's different entities of that, of that person. And so there are still areas that I'm still healing in but I can appreciate, you know, being seven years old and the things that went on there, you know? And then of course, now now that I'm sober and, and moving forward, but there's still, you know, trauma, it's kind of like, as we say in, in rooms of recovery, it's like the onion peels back. Mm-hmm. And so, and I think source, that's something, you know, it's who I call my higher power, source does that intentionally, right? So. So, so I can hold it together. <laughs> but yeah, I think as, you know, to be able to see that young woman, again, grow through, it, it's, it's amazing the level of courage that, that that took. You talk about courage, you also said the word
1: power in a different connotation that I would mention right now. But if you think of the two things that I would understand of you, the bodybuilding and the dominatrix side of things, those are two things where you took your power. Mm -hmm. Expand on that a little bit, because I think that taking one's power for yourself can probably help you recover faster than just about anything.
2: I agree. We'll first start there that yes, I agree. I think, uh, let's, let's go with the, the juicy topic of those two, the, the power part of it, right? So me as a femdom, I had to be exposed to some of the trauma to be able to know what it feels like to be the underdog, to not be socially acceptable, you know, to have to keep parts of my life secretive, right? There were a lot of learning lessons along the way. And then as I matured and then I realized my sexuality and that energetic side that I love to play in, that is then when I was able to look at a scene as more of me holding space and it, I see topping or anything where, where one person is allowing, well, there's a little rabbit ears there, allowing <laughs> um, somebody else to be their true authentic self. That is an amazing gift for me to be able to do. And of course I get the benefits. I love to top, I love the, I love the power exchange. It, it's, it's a high for both of us, but to be able to want something that was taken from me Now, given back to me because of the work I've done, but then also to be able to benefit somebody else. I mean, that's magnificent. And that's the way I choose to look at the patterns that have taken place in my life.
1: When did you first have an inkling that kink would be a part of your life?
2: I was a tomboy growing up. And so I was already not like the other girls, <laughs> and so, um, and and we roughhoused a lot, right? So um, when I did become sexually active, I you know I tried the typical like submissive position, and it was terrible. <laughs> it was really terrible, and perhaps that could be because of what happened when I was younger. I don't care, I don't know, I don't care, but I know that within me, my energy is like when I, and it was a little, you know, little alcohol induced, but it was kind of like, you know what? I don't want to keep doing this this way. Mm -hmm. And then once I started to be a little bit more aggressive in my, my sexual adventures, then I felt like this charge come on. And then of course, then, you know, I just nurtured that. I learned from other women who are, who are dominant, you know? Um, oh, and then oh, uh, other older sober women who are, who are also femdoms. So it was just inside of me that I didn't realize was there.
1: Did the journey getting through your alcohol take aside your ability to be genuinely kinky or
2: did it feed into a hunger? When I got sober, I got authentic, Mm -hmm. right? So when I got sober, I was told that people, places and things had to change. And what it is, is you just strip it down, (laughs) clear your stuff out and then see who is that authentic self. Right. And and I remember sharing, I had asked a, another lady within the rooms of recovery, you know, can you, will you, will you mentor me? And, uh, and she said, you know, I know about your lifestyle and I don't believe in it. And she declined and she declined my, 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 uh, my offer of my, you know, interest. Um, but I knew in my heart of hearts that I didn't, I didn't one day say, Hey, you know what? I, I think I wanna grow up and be a femdom. I think I wanna grow up thoroughly enjoying paddling bare white asses. I think this is gonna be, I mean, I did not come up with that on my own, okay? And so when I, when you know, when I, that first year of recovery of that stripping away from you know, all that stuff, that still remained. And it, now that it was able to be like totally exposed within me, I saw it as that's, that's God given this is who I am, this is part of who I am. And again, I see the space that I hold for people, that's a gift in and of itself.
1: And Femdom is so much about the exchange of energy, the exchange of power, mm-hmm. sometimes the giving of pain. But for most of the people that I know, and this is going to blow a lot of people away if for some reason they're tuning in and not realizing what kink is, Mm -hmm. the pain that is given and received is a process. It's not a means to getting yourself off. It is a means to process something that's going on, not only in your mind, but in your heart. That gift that you're giving people is what you had to go through in your life. Mm
2: -hmm. Exactly. And as I'm I'm glad you brought up the, the pain aspect of it, because sometimes the misconception is that I'm an angry woman and I just want to take it out on men. Okay, so there it is. There's the big stereotype. But really what it is, is it doesn't matter what apparatus I have in my hand, that is not the point a lot of my domination is all in in the mind the male mind the male ego i love to play with it you know and those are things that that they can't get in other you know in other areas um there's one other point you just made we'll have to cut that out (laughs) that's
1: okay Uh, I'll, i'll make a quick note uh the, uh, the other thing that I was mentioning was the fact that people process pain, but that you had taken some of that pain that you had had to process and be able to turn it around as a gift of sorts to others.
2: And, you know, if you think about when you go to the gym and you work out hard, there is a release of stress. I mean, that's one of the beautiful things about the physical aspects of, of working out and training your body is that you are constantly keeping it, keeping it balanced. And I also believe that, say for instance, in, in my scenario where me as a top and then my submissive man, if he has things that he has to work out, um, it can be very healing. Because let's face it, I can't go back to the situation and put a band-aid on it and say you're healed. It resonates in so many different areas of of your body and your being. And so sometimes just going into that scene with me, relinquishing that power, just stepping out of your head and going into your body. These are very, very healing things that the majority of men do not get to experience if ever. So, yes, it is a gift for both of us.
1: And the healing goes both ways because you have a top who has lived a life of being out of control, searching for that control in their heart. And so many times the bottoms are people who have nothing but control, nothing but responsibility, nothing but needing to make sure that they do everything perfectly Mm. being given the gift of you're out of control. You don't have to worry about that. The
2: decisions are not yours. Yes. And in fact, I encourage this, like continue to let go. Um, When you say uh, it's healing for both of us, it's also, besides the, the power aspect of it, I also see that when I'm holding space and there's a scene between me and another, is that this is, a, it's a form of love. It's a form of communication. I am loving this soul by doing ABC. But again, it doesn't matter what apparatus I'm holding, it's the, it's the energy exchange that's taking place. So, I mean, it's kind of, it, it's like the more you give, the more you receive back, and I find that to be the same here. Some of the mo- the men who have have um, have had the honor of being at my feet are some of the most amazing, soft hearted, beautiful gentlemen who are corporate assholes <laughs> by day, but then to come in and see that side, it's fantastic. I just I can't I can't get enough of it sometimes. <laughs> It's
1: interesting that you bring up the fact that they're corporate assholes. (laughs) And the reason I mention that is because, and it's no secret, we're entering year two of this show, and in the battle of the sexes, I rarely cheer for my own side. It's just that way. Do you believe that if some men who are just naturally assholes could experience what you bring would they see life in a
2: different way if they had or will they always just be assholes well first we got to look at what made them an asshole let's start there okay because i have to believe that every child that is born does not pop out saying that's it i'm gonna be an asshole for the rest of my life you know where did that root from where's the origin um and then i i I do have to say that if they were anywhere near a vicinity of being within my presence, they're already have a little crack in that shell. Like the curiosity has got the, you know, the cat, the cat's done. So it's like, if I, if that little, if I can spot that little crack, <laughs> I can get in there, I can wiggle in there, you know, and, and I think that I would hope that, again, them being able to be in that space with me with me would be would be a game changer at least for that moment but it goes
1: back to your journey yeah. it goes back to how the foundation was built on not only this shaky ground but this liquid ground that you never knew if it was going to stay in the same place mhm And I have often said, and especially about my daughter, who I've spoken about on this podcast many times, when she had her mental health issues when she was young, she was violent, but I never looked at her actions. I never considered her thoughts. I only looked at her heart and knew that that was the source where the pain is being put to, and everything else is radiating out trying to get rid of that pain. Exactly. And I think that there are a lot of people, male or female, who get to the point of realizing kind of what they've done in life and realize that they need to step back and allow somebody else to take control. Beautiful thing about femdom is you release that and you give that as a gift to someone else. Do you have a story of somebody that entered your presence, entered your space, as you like to put it, that came in one way that you were like, I'm not quite sure if this is going to work, but by the time they left, you
2: said... I've made a change in them. Typically, if I would have to play with them a couple times. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, I think, more so is just to get that, that flow, that rhythm between us. Um, I, I did have a gentleman, and this is actually in the book. Um, I did have a gentleman who, who came to me as a very staunch, you know, um, the executive and um, made light comments about interest of cross-dressing.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And, I, and, I, and I, I pinpointed that. And so even though he didn't have the courage to ask for more, he didn't even know what to ask for, mm-hmm. you know, um, but with my knowledge and my experience, I could, you know, give little ideas like putting him in panties. While he's at the office, you know, little things like that that would just charge him up. And so what happened then is I I think also because of the dynamic of me being a woman and him then becoming like like a, a little girl or a, a female, also then gives it that nurturing effect, mm-hmm. right? And so then he became very soft. In fact, we changed his name. Um, you know, I, we, we bought fantastic outfits. We actually went to transgendered conferences. So a whole side of him came out that I, he, when he put on the application, it was just, I, I like women's heels and panties. I like to wear women's panties. That was what was the intro. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that went on for probably five, six years. So I got to see the inside and, and that's, that's, that's what matters. No matter what the outside looks like.
1: You talked about mentors. And for those of you who don't know, Dallas is a place that has a very vibrant kink community. It has some amazing domains that have come out of there. Mm-hmm. Did you have any mentors that you really look at and say, this person made a huge difference in the way I'm able to understand this.
2: Yes. And I, I, I referred to myself as a baby Dom. I was a baby Dom. <laughs> <laughs> I had just moved from my terrible heartbreak and I, I, I've just relocated here in the, in the, in the area. And I was on you know, fet Life, mm-hmm. chit chatting, starting to find community. You know, then I was given a boy, and this boy just seemed to know any, er, you know, everybody within the community. And so when he realized that I was sober and that, you know, that I'm obviously a femdom, he he connected me with a lady who I refer to in the book, and it was huge because, of course, I didn't think I had. I knew I had power but that was more of my sexual relations. I mean, being a femdom is not, not anything like a personal femdom, right? So it's like to, to learn from her and to watch her and to see the exchange, yes, absolutely. And then, um, and then to take it into a professional setting. That's when I was able to be overseas and I, I worked with uh, mistress Anya and, uh, and it was a whole new, whole new world of, of topping. Um, but I think to answer the question, the, 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 nut, the nooks and cranny of it is from the, the lady here that I met in Dallas. She definitely made an impact.
1: That is one definite connection that we will talk about more. And we'll talk about the effect of connections when they're lost and when they're found when we return on What Women and Other Wonderful Humans Want.
0: Hi, this is Jane Boone, the author of the novel Edgeplay. It's a revenge fantasy where the big short meets 50 shades of gray. Only the women wield the whips and the billionaires submit. You can find it at Amazon in paperback or for your Kindle. And be sure to check out my episode with Tara Indiana right here on What Women and Other Wonderful Humans Want. Thank you. Hi, this is Rachel Leadum, aka The Conscious Masochist. I'm an author and sadomasochism integration mentor who encourages the mindful exploration of your dark side. I offer astrological birth chart readings to interpret your sadomasochistic blueprint through the clues found within your chart. You can learn more about my work, including the ebook Conscious Masochism, at my website, www.rachaletum.com join us on Instagram at The Conscious Masochist. And be sure to check out my episode in the archives of what women and other wonderful humans want. Hi, this is Venus, and I have a special message going out to all the single ladies listening right now. What if you could have a committed, loving relationship with a partner who is monogamous to you, but who would love to see you have sexual experiences with others? Sounds too good to be true, right? Well, it's not. You really can have your cake and eat it, too. You can have it all. Learn more at VenusConnections.com. That's VenusConnections.com. Are you liking what you're hearing? Check out the Total Archives wherever you find your podcasts. And please remember to subscribe so you don't miss a minute. And while you're there, help John out by giving him a rating and a review. We really appreciate your feedback. Now let's get back to what women and other wonderful humans want.
1: Back on the show with Jules, who has just put out a new book called Jules, The Making of a Woman. Uh, amazing story of someone who has lived many lives and has brought it together in one inspirational story. And before the break, we were talking about connections and the connection you had with your mentors. Going through life with the abuse and trauma that you had as a child, and the fighting the demons of substance and and alcohol that gave your life what it had during that time. Those are all seemingly a sense of missed connections, or unconnected connections. And in the case of alcohol, I can't speak from experience because i drank as a high school kid, and I've only been drunk enough to have a hangover one time in my entire life. Oh, boy. (laughs) So I don't understand that side of it. But I did have a sister who for 40 years abused drugs and alcohol in every potential way. Mm -hmm. And what I saw in that was desperately seeking something. I didn't know what the something was until I realized when I went through depression of my own, that that is connection. It's like all these, if you wanna use science fiction or even science, all these ganglia reaching out, trying to find something and using the different things that happen to you as you try to find something and nothing ever picks up. And then you discover that when you find those connections, then suddenly, you're able to move on. Is that kind of your story?
2: A little bit of it. Absolutely. So when you use the word connection, I will also use the word love. So let's go back when I was a little person, right? The from changing from the first family to the second family, I got lost within a family of five. I was an only child to a family of five.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: My mom now has taken on a whole new role. In fact, she lives on the other, other side of the house. I lost that connection as you're speaking, that love, that nurturing, that all that stuff is supposed to happen. And so what happened then is in, in the Midwest as well, I mean, it, there's a lot of drinking that goes on up there. Mm-hmm. I, I have a picture of me in a, in a high chair with beer in my baby bottle. I mean, this is back in the day where they said, you know, put what are they whiskey or whatever on their gut to make them stop crying. This is the era I was crying, no. I was raised in, and so um, you know, me having alcohol at that young age is not surprising. But then ultimately, what happened is all of the trauma, and and what it is is that alcohol was my solution, mm-hmm. and I say that because because I lacked that nurturing, that all of that growing up, I did not know how to deal with the trauma within nor the emotions that came from that trauma. So what would happen is good or bad, if I get really excited about something or if I got really down the dumps on something, anything I would drink
1: Mm -hmm.
2: and drink would make me, it would like neutralize me, right? And let's face it, there's trauma. There's a lot of rage. People do not like to see that. I, I desperately need to stay connected, right? So if I medicate myself with, you know, these drugs and alcohol, first off, I'm fitting in with my surrounding, which is a connector, right? That's my sense of love. And then also, I am not, my, my, my emotions have subsided because mm-hmm. I pushed them down. So then what has happened, though, is then I keep... I keep moving, and of course, this is where the chemistry of my brain shifts, because after a while, it takes on an addictive behavior, and so now I'm wired like this, right? Just like meditation, they say if you meditate for this many days, you literally change, you know, the synapses in your brain, you know, the connections. So this is the same thing. So as the drugs and the alcohol, you know, the people, of course, I just continued. To like circle the drain is really what happened. So I didn't the connections were less and less, and the alcohol got more and more. Mm -hmm. And again, when I got into recovery, which was a disaster, I was a disastrous hot mess when I went into the rooms of recovery. I'm surprised. I'm I'm surprised at the amount of rage I had that particular year that without the use of drugs and alcohol to push it down, I'm really surprised I didn't hurt myself or somebody else. I mean, there was a lot. And so, but then that's where I started feeling the connections. And that was something as simple as the women gave me a hug and said, I'll see you tomorrow, Jules. What? I am not, I have not been hanging out with people who A, give me a hug or B, tell me, I'll see you tomorrow. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no, it's usually like, get out. <laughs> so, and so then that's how the, these connections started to, to started to form. And then people actually listen to me, even if I was raging. So it's interesting. It's interesting how alcohol worked for a while, and then it didn't work for a while.
1: At what point did your source start telling you there's gotta be a change? And was there a specific
2: incident that made you go, okay, it's time? Now, keep in mind at that level of drinking and drugging, my connection with reality is, is broken. I now have surrounded myself with people who are not socially adaptable. I mean, so I if source did try to permeate with a thought <laughs> or a situation, I was in no no uh, shape to be able to receive it. But what did happen and this is kind of it's kind of funny because I didn't have anything to do with it I was in. I was in a car with with some friends and I just nonchalantly, no big deal, threw out the words, I wish I didn't drink so much. And the two people, the two women in the front seat, their little (laughs) little ears went up like antennas. They were both in recovery. Hmm. And within 30 minutes, I was in my first meeting of recovery. I didn't ask for it. I didn't, I mean, my life was a mess. I knew that, but I'm, I'm a fighter. My life's been a mess for the last 30 years. <laughs> what's What's so big about today? You know, um, there were a couple of times I hit the bottom and I did the, you know, the foxhole prayers of like, you gotta get me out of this, if you get me out. But I do not think, I I think I was so delusional and so detached, detached that even if source did try to <laughs> give me an insight, I don't think I would have even recognized it.
1: What was the first attachment you felt? What was the thing that pulled you
2: further and further? Into recovery? Mm -hmm. It was was those hugs, John. (laughs) I am telling you, I've learned now as well, that actually when we bring two bodies together and we hug... You're connecting hearts. And so just another sober woman, even three days more sober than me, and in hugging, there's there's just so many th- amazing things about that. And, and it, I think it just it melts you. It it just it the, the defenses fall down, you hug, you cry. I mean, it's just like <laughs> And that is really what kept me going back. Because up to that point, I don't know how many years or whatnot. I mean, any touch I got was not warm and fuzzy. I was, you know, I was fighting a battle out there and I was fighting some pretty, you know, pretty rough people. So to get that, it was so, thank God for those women. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah. I actually wrote
1: an essay called The Healing Power of Hugs, oh. and I talked about the fact that every hug has its own translation. It is a language. Yes. There is the hug that says, I'm happy you were around me today. There was the hug that says, I need you here. There's the hug that says, happy to see you. <laughs> There's the hug that says, I need someone to connect with me and don't let go because I need you. There's also the loving hugs. There's the guy hugs, which can still have some amazing connection to them. And as part of a Ted talk that I did, ironically enough in Dallas, Texas, Ah. I talked about the fact that when The Jerry Sandusky case happened at Penn State where athletic departments went on this huge high alert standard that no male shall touch another female because it's going to be considered sexual in nature. They took the hugs away between people like an 88 year old former Tuskegee airman who would hug the players on the way to the game every day and provide them with power. It didn't matter if it was a man or a woman athlete. Mm -hmm. They took away the genuine connection of appreciation. And I went on in this Ted talk and I said, when did a hug become something of suspicion rather than something of affection? And I think we are starting to, with understanding the rules of consent, get back to those hugs. Because we realized in the last two years how much we miss them.
2: So true. So, so true. And there are people who cuddle as an occupation. Mm-hmm. I mean... That... I know some. <laughs> yes. You know, so yes, it's, it's fabulous that people are starting to become open to it because then that's just going to radiate, right? That energy is just going to continue to radiate, but yeah, hugs are very, very powerful.
1: Describe one of the best ones that you've had after a scene has been over, because that usually
2: always happens. You know, I typically lay my boy's head in my lap afterwards. And so maybe it's not a hug of wrapping my arms around them, but it is a hug of like holding them, holding them and petting their hair, their head. It's again, it's things that we don't see um, in, in in every day. And to just almost like see him like snuggle up (laughs) in this, in this great little space that we've created together. Um, Yeah. Power of touch. And I think that that happens with pretty much anybody I play with. Yeah.
1: When I went to the doctor, I don't think I've told the story on the podcast, but when I went to the doctor in February and they went to take my blood pressure, I started crying. And the doctor was going, you okay? And I said, I just realized that's the first human touch I've felt in four months. And I am a hugger. Mm. I live for touch. Yeah. And people who know me, they know I will will now ask for consent, but that <laughs> chances are they're going to get a hug from John or a hug from CatSuit, and it'll be a good one.
2: Yes, and I love the hugs when the... I'm not the one who breaks away. Mm-hmm. I love that. I love when the hug just lasts as long as it needs to last.
1: It is the absolute definition of safe space. It totally is. You're right. You're right. Yeah. <laughs> From safe space, we will go to some heavy metal when we return on what women and other wonderful humans want. Realizing that you're a polyamorous can be a wonderful insight. The Polyamory Dating Guide is a book about finding other people who share your view of polyamory and want to share it with you. This book includes a variety of sections on poly-specific dating, such as navigating online dating with a review of poly-specific dating sites and how to make a profile that works. Real-time dating tips that will tell you where to find polyam people and how to make a positive impression. How to date as an existing couple, and if you should, dating as an introvert, queer in dating, and lots more. Get your copy at polyamorydatingguide.com.
0: It's time to get back to learning about the most important connection of all the one we have with our authentic self, on what women and other wonderful humans want. Presented by Dating Kinky.
1: Welcome back to the show. We are joined by Jules, the author of Jules, The Making of a Woman, an amazing story that has the latest chapter. And I'm guessing that you talked a little bit about thinking about doing this, but you have just competed in a national figure competition, which involves bodybuilding and involves physique. It involves a lot of heavy metal lifting a lot of weights. What was the genesis
2: of this? This is a manifestation of a fear. (laughs) I had turned 40. I had the average 40 year old looking body. But what I saw in the mirror, as we spoke of earlier, and the committee that was in my head hold me different. And so I, I went forth and found a trainer. I, I, I had to change the way my thighs looked. I just, and I only weighed 120 pounds. I mean, this there's a little bit of delusional going on here, but, and, and so I, I took this journey and then I took a plunge and this plunge then went from, you know, the corporate small, you know, personal trainers to, uh, into a bodybuilding gym with an IFBB pro as my trainer. And I have, I have these pictures still today. I had to stand, you know, in a posing room, which is all mirrors and all lights. She had told me, she says, I'm going to need to take before and after pictures. So when, you know, when we come in for the first time, I need you to come in and, you know, just bring a two-piece bikini and that. I'm like, I don't even own a two-piece. I, I, don't, I don't own a two-piece bikini. It's like, I wear Spanx underneath blue jeans in the Dallas heat. I do not own even a one-piece bathing suit. And so looking at these pictures of me in my sports bra in these big, big white bottom panties, I don't even know where I got those. Um, I almost have like a tint of green. I'm mortified. My hair at this time is jet black. My skin is pale. And I'm just, I mean, I'm just gutting it through to get these pictures done. So I'm a person that when I want something, I have laser focus. And I was so tired of the battle between the chatter in my head and what I saw in the mirror for all these years, when that trainer Told me, this is what you're going to eat. This is a meal plan. You need to have this much to drink, la, 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 la. I stayed to that religiously for well over a year. No cheap meals. I drank a gallon of water religiously. I mean, I wanted it bad. And I started to see changes. And I was like, oh my God. And so I mean, the first time you see a little bicep action, you're like, "I want more," <laughs> and so, and so that's what happened. And then over the course of the years, you know, I got another trainer. I then, you know, did my first my first bodybuilding show. Um, I think I took third out of three. I mean, <laughs> it was mm-hmm. like it, it was this amazing accomplishment. I mean, I'm not only getting on stage, I am now in stage in a two-piece bikini and high heels and you are judging me. <laughs> I mean, like how, how more terrifying can this be? Um, and so, but as I build confidence, as I see the changes, you know, so it was last year, I did a, I did a, sh- a show uh, in December and I was in a, a different division and I, I had really good conditioning, which means that's like, you can really see my tone. You can see all of my muscles and such. And so my conditioning was really well, but I still didn't place as well as I thought I should. So one of the coaches, excuse me, one of the judges contacted my coach that evening and said, you know, there's one more show left of the year and it's in 12 days. And it's, I want you to put her into figure and see how she does. So here I now have to learn a new routine. I have to to do all of this in heels and I have 12 days to do this, which means I now still have to stay in that prep, the food prep. But what happened is I knocked it out of the park. I took a first, I took a second and I took a third. A third overall, I was like, oh my gosh. So then I qualified for nationals. And I'm like, oh my god! So then we got things got real, and my trainer. It was probably the hardest physical thing I've ever done, is those 14 weeks of prep. And uh, in fact, I'm blogging about that right now. So, um, but then I I went to Pittsburgh. I qualified for nationals, and I went in the the show is called North America's, and so it is all the competitors from Canada, the United States, and Mexico, and all of the women and they categorize us by age, age and height. And so, um, I ended up with these amazing athletes, these beautiful women, flawless, of course, in my eyes. And I came home in the top third, top three people. I took home a third place trophy. Oh my God. It's like, I, I was just happy to get the cellulite off my legs. Let's just start there. (laughs) And now here I am at a national level and I'll be going back next year because I have something else to get while I'm there next year. Mm. (laughs) So yeah, it's pushing through when I don't think I can do it. Have you
1: considered and have you looked at before and after pictures of when you first started femdoming, and now.
2: Oh, now. You know how your iPhone will give you, remember whens? Mm
1: -hmm. And the picture
2: comes up. Sometimes they will shoot up and I'll be like that jet black hair that I described in that pale face. And it's like, and I look at, she's so skinny. (laughs) But of course, that was a day in the age where my clothes didn't come off. So Mm -hmm. that would just be the look. Um, But I do do them from the first, those, those pictures I took with that first trainer in the posing room. And then I put it next to that first competition. And then I put it in in what I did last year. And it's kind of like, like a bottle of wine. It it just gets better. Mm -hmm. And so that's, and I actually put a lot of things on the back of my door to my apartment because when I leave and go out into the real world, I need to be reminded of what I, what I did. So just some of my little, my little secrets that, that keep me going. To bring this full
1: circle, your latest chapter is building a body that has been built by a heart that has had to build itself and rebuild itself over and over. When you look back on the journey and where you've come from, and where you
2: are. Jules, where do you want to go? I want to keep reaching out. I want to desperately continue to connect. And if there's a, if there's a way, I don't know, because again, the person I was talking about earlier, that source couldn't have, you know, knocked me in the head and I probably wouldn't have seen it. So I don't know how I at, on a human level can actually permeate in other people's world. They might be just as, you know, as, as, uh, you know, armored up as I was, but I, I know the power of the word. The word is so powerful and and I know what it's like to share an experience opposed to being told what to do. These are the things I've learned in my, in my days of, of being in the rooms of recovery. So what I wanna be able to do, and that's why I'm doing you know, podcasts and this book, this book, it's not about me. Oh my God, I tell my story all the time, right? It's, it's not about me. It's about the women that I connect with in the elevator, at the gym, at the airport. I mean, that's, I was just going out to, I was at the mall, what, what's the occasion? I have a book signing you know, party this weekend. Oh my God, you wrote a book. I mean, so that is what I wanna do. But for, to move forward in, in, in reference to a book, I want to do more, we'll say research um, about learning about other women who are in the the open marriage lifestyle. And I want to know, because so many people have abuse as, as, as their childhood history, right? And these women then come into the same shoes of adulthood. And I want to know like how much of that is authentic and how much of it is not. And I think some of my femme femdom is coming out in that. Like, are you really doing it for yourself, for your pleasure? Or are you doing it for the pleasure of others? And that is also you know, a societal norm. You know, as women, we're we supposed to um, uh, you know, attend to other people. We're we, you know, we supposed to accommodate. So that, that interests me because I had to unlearn a lot of that when I, you know, this authentic self, I had to like peel that away and be like, ah, whose belief is that? So I'm hoping that, you know, now this will manifest and I'll be able to, you know, help more women in an area that I would be learning in as well.
1: Jules, it has been an absolute pleasure having you on the podcast today. An amazing story and just some amazing inspiration. And I really appreciate you being on the show.
2: Thank you. I am so glad we got to do this. Thank you so much, John.
1: An amazing story to be sure from Jules, and I wish her the best as she continues her journey in growing and discovering who she is in her authentic self. Coming up this Friday, a bonus episode with one of our previous guests joining us for another round. It is the host of the Dill Dorks podcast. It is Kate Sloan, who has written a beautiful book called 101 Kinky Things Even You Can Do. We'll talk about at least 100 of them, as well as catch up with the amazing girly juice. Kate Sloan coming up on Friday on what women and other wonderful humans want. I'm John, also known as Hi There Catsuit, thanking you for being with us. I hope I've earned the privilege of your time and I remind you to always remember consent and to love each other always.
0: What Women and Other Wonderful Humans Want connects with you. We invite you to follow us on social media. Check us out at What Women Want P1 on Twitter, What Women Want Podcast on Instagram, And for our kinky friends on FetLife at www.podcast. This has been a presentation of Dating Kinky. Kinky done differently.